You're listening to a teaching from Sundown Church. We hope you encounter God through our podcast and experience freedom in your life. Good morning and uh, thank you for listening in or or joining in uh, whenever you have an opportunity to spend a few minutes with us and listen to this, uh, this sermon. I'm just going to jump in this morning and ask uh, if you want to follow along in your Bible to go to, to the book of 1 John. Uh, remarkable book, and chapter 4 is a remarkable chapter. It's one where we really ought to camp in that chapter every day of our life. It is so definitive, it is so clear, it is so full of such relevant truth, we should just land there and stay there for the entirety of our life. Uh, I'm going to begin reading uh, in verse 11, 1 John chapter 4, verse 11. Beloved, so he's speaking to those whom he loves. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwells in us and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit and we have seen and do testify that the father sent the son to be the savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the son of God God dwells in him, and he in God. I find in these few verses perhaps the most basic concept, the most fundamental and clear truth of the believer's life. This is foundational. This is structural in how we see our lives moving forward from this point individually and collectively as this body that has been formed, that has been united, that has been tested, that has proven itself to be strong here in sundown in this area. Our moving forward as the formed, united, and strong body that he has formed here hangs in these words. We will either get it or we won't. It will either matter or it won't. There's not a middle ground to be discovered here. There's nothing casual in these words. And I hope that you will see that this morning. This is going to be a bit of a mental and an emotional journey. I hope it is I hope it takes you deep in thought. There's a portion of this where I just have to really teach some basic but deep things, things that you have heard before but need to reconnect. Much of it, I hope, will cause you to examine your current story, our current story, to to cause you to find yourself in a place of yes, or discover that you have lived in a place of no. 
I hope it hits you on all of those levels. I want us to, to go back and just listen again, first of all, to verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought, and I'm going to stop there. Odd place to stop, but we need to understand very quickly this word ought. When we use it, we use it in terms of, well, I ought to do something. I ought to go see someone. I ought to, I ought to take care of this. Kind of considering one of our options. But the word ought is not referring to a suggestion. It's not referring to an option. It's not referring to a possibility. The definition in Greek says to owe, O-W-E, to owe money, to be in debt for that which is due. It's not an ought because there's possibilities. It's an ought because the price has been paid. The price that has been paid says that this is now due. Think about that. It changes the scripture. It's not a maybe we should because I read here such good things. I read such good things here and those good things create the need for this second part. So beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Not a suggestion, not, a, not an option, not a possibility. Loving one another is something we owe because of a price that has been already paid. So here's the question. What are the mechanics behind that truth? What makes that truth work? Why is it a spiritual absolute? If God loved us, it is our due to love one another. So what are the mechanics behind that? What makes that such a clear spiritual absolute, no wavering. Can it be some other way? Is, is there some other way for us to function that would be acceptable and in agreement with the way he designed us? I want you to think about that. Could there ever be an option where he so loved us, he gave himself to us, he loved us that much, and that for any reason, that would simply be held in me and never extended to someone else. Could that be a possibility? Can we find that exception? And I think you already know the answer. But the mechanics are these. It's very simple. If I fill a jar, and it's a jar made of clear glass... If I, if I take that clear glass jar and I pour a green liquid into the clear glass jar, what will always happen? Unless there is some trick, unless there is some deception, the jar itself will appear as green. Now there's the mechanics. A clear jar pour in a green liquid, and the jar itself then will appear green. The transparency, the transparency of the jar will cause it to take on the attribute of what was put in it. 
And that is an every time true statement. Again, I see where there could be a trick. I see where somebody could do something different. But if you let the mechanics, the simple mechanics work, a hundred out of a hundred times, that's going to happen. A hundred out of a hundred times, a thousand out of a thousand times, that is going to happen. Verse 13 makes that bold announcement. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us, the green liquid's been poured into the transparent jar because he has given us of his spirit. So what, what's been poured into us? What is supposed to be seen through this transparency? Well, he tells us in verse 13 how we should look. He has given us of his spirit. The spirit of God has been poured in. The spirit of God has filled the transparent jar. What color will we turn when found in this transparent state? How will I look every time? Not occasionally. How will I look consistently in this transparent state in which I live? What look will we take on? Because he has put his spirit in us, we will look like his spirit. We will look like him every time. And I know what I'm saying here, and I know the narrowness that this creates because most people's mind begins to spin right there and says, well, I can't look like him all the time. Well, I will deal with that in just a minute. But I want us to understand what is the basic fundamental workings of what God has designed. If we don't touch it, what does it look like? If I'm transparent and he's poured the Spirit in, then I will look like the Spirit with the same consistency that the jar will look green every time. I, I can, on occasion, reject or rebel or quench that spirit. But my default, my new factory setting as a, as a believer, my, my new natural state now is to look like him, not, but, not by my effort, but by his spirit that now dwells in me. I have preached this. I have taught it consistently. This is a every time truth. It's made an every time truth in verse 15. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the son of God, God dwells in him and he in God. That's what makes it an every time statement. That now becomes wiring. We are hardwired into that truth. Hardwired into who we are. A child will look like his father and his mother. Now someone, I have to take a, a brief detour here because someone may have on their mind that this only works when a person is transparent, as I mentioned, clean and clear. 
transparent. It's strange that most believers don't feel or believe themselves to be transparent. They don't see themselves to be clean. They don't see themselves to be clear. Why? Because they keep assessing what they're doing and failing to understand what God has done. I'm not made clean. I'm not made clear about what I have done. I, have, I am clean and clear, transparent because of what he has done. Most still feel dirty. Most still feel used. Most still feel broken. They feel shameful, embarrassed, condemned, judged, measured, consistently, always considering themselves in their ugliness, in their brokenness, in their sin. But if you're hearing me this morning and have found yourself in that verse 15 moment, in that verse 15 position, confessing with your mouth, confessing with your life that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. If you're saying today, I am a believer, I am a Christian, I have put my faith in him, I am confessing with my mouth, I am confessing with my life that Jesus is the Son of God, then you have been made transparent. That's not an if either. That's not, there's not a third category. Verse 15 doesn't create options. It's not an if. It's an absolute. Look at it again. It's just very easy. Whosoever, anyone who will confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwells in him and he in God. That spirit has been given. Verse 10, I'm gonna, it goes back to before where I started reading. We need to pick it up now. Verse 10 tells of our transparent conversion. Here's what it says. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. Herein is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. All right. Again, I have to pause for a moment. It's like to address the word ought. I have to address the word propitiation. And I'm, there's a, a deep version of this teaching and there's a shallower version. And for the sake of time, and because this is not the main point this morning, I need to just give the short version. So in overly simple terms, we need to understand very briefly this word propitiation. In the Old Testament, we hear only of the expiation or better described the expiatory victim, that animal that was sacrificed. So uh, these may be terms that you have heard, maybe terms you haven't, but the animal that was killed, the, the blood that was, that was shed was, was the blood of the expiatory victim victim. The word propitiation, however, is used to speak of the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. Now the lid to the Ark of the Covenant, called the mercy seat, the lid, the propit 
this is going to be hard to say. The pro- the, the propitiatorium. Don't want to have to say that again. The lid being the propitiation was sprinkled with the blood of the expiatory victim on the Day of Atonement, which signified this. The Day of Atonement signified this for for the Old Testament Jews. It signified that the life of the people and the loss of that life, which had been merited by their sins, was offered to God in the blood of the expiatory victim. The sin was given to God through the bloodshed of the expiatory victim, the animal that was killed. And that God by this act was satisfied or appeased and their sins were expiated. So I want us to go to Romans 3 for just a second. Very familiar scriptures. I'll begin reading in verse 23. Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of our glass is stained and dirty with that sin. Every jar dirty. Every jar unusable. All have sinned. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be the propitiation through the faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. Now, because of the propitiation, now because what Jesus has done, now we are perfectly clean, no exceptions. Go back and read Romans 3, verses 23 through 26 again. Slow down, read them carefully, and you will find in that that he, once again, didn't create a third category. He didn't create a category that said that if you're a believer, if you've come to that point of confessing that Jesus is Lord, that you, that you live in any other state, any other condition. Again, I'm not saying this to make you doubt. I'm hoping that you see clearly who God sees when he sees you. A clear jar, transparent, not because of us, but because of him. Whom God, Jesus, the, Jesus Christ, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission, remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at the time, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of me, the justifier of him that believes in Jesus. So we read in those scriptures that Jesus, we see here, was both the expiatory victim and also the proprietary cover. The propitiatory, sorry, the propitiatory cover of the mercy seat. So think of it this way. Jesus was was the victim. It was his blood that was sprinkled on the mercy seat. 
But the mercy seat was the covering for that sin. Jesus, the expiatory victim. Jesus, the propitiation. Jesus, the lid that covered your sin. That's how this works. Again, I don't get to make this up. I don't get to alter the design. I don't get to change his plan. We are, he, he came to be the victim so that an appeasement could be made to the Father for the sin that I have committed, that I will commit, that, that he is the expiatory victim. It will be his blood. But it's also him who comes in as the covering, the lid, the mercy seat that destroys that sin that we, that we have talked about before. Can I still sin? It's a great question. Paul asked it. Yes, but not easily. Yes, but not casually. Yes, but having to overcome and resist a brand new nature that now has been imputed to us according to the Scripture. Yes, as Paul declares it's possible. Yes, I still can. However, that sin occurs as I move away from the new life he purchased for us according to Romans 6, 4. I can't commit the sin that would separate me from him eternally ever again because his work on the cross was complete. The father was satisfied and appeased by the blood of his son and Jesus became the covering that destroyed the sin so that it can't be found anymore. Yes, I can move away. Yes, I can quench the spirit. As I was meeting with someone the other day, I told him, I said, we're sitting here under this gazebo. And we're in the shade. If I choose to move out from under this shelter and under this shade, I will get sunburned. There's a natural consequence, and it's a painful one. If I move out from under the shelter, the, the new life that he has bought and paid for. That's because I made a choice <clears throat> to step out from under that which he has provided. I have covered <clears throat> here some, I think, some necessary and foundational things. But I must now get on to what the Lord has shown me that he wants as his focus this morning. <clears throat> so let's continue in 1 John chapter 4, and I'll begin reading now in verse 16. With those things behind us now, how mechanically we have been made clear, clean, transparent, how we now have been given the Spirit of God to live in us to change how we look, to change who we are. Verse 16, And we have known and believed the love that God has to us. God is love. And he that dwells in love dwells in God and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear has torment. He that fears is not made perfect in love. We love him, because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he that loves not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? 
And this commandment have we from him, that he who loves God loves his brother also. Okay. I don't know what that scripture does to you, but it makes me get down to serious business. It, it takes me deep into the trenches. I want to use an illustration, and it's going to be an odd one. It comes from my oil field days, and maybe, maybe hopefully I can use this illustration to show all of us something tremendously profound from this passage. I used this illustration with a couple of people uh, this week and a couple of different times in other conversations, and I hope it made sense then, and I hope it will make sense now. <clears throat> this may seem very convoluted, but I hope not. I hope it's clear. When we would first drill an injection well, a well where we were injecting something in, into the ground for recovery, they would drill the, the well, and the first thing they would put in would be casing. I'm not going to describe all that process, but casing, a large pipe. After that was in place, set, cemented in, all the things that were done, then another smaller string called tubing would be put inside that larger pipe. Well, during the time that the work was being done, the space between the large pipe and the small pipe and inside the small pipe would be filled with salt water or, and corrosive water. So as the last thing that we would do, we would hook a hose, a pipe, up to the large pipe, the, the outer casing, and we would begin to pump a treated water corrosive inhibitor water down that space between the large pipe and the small, 5,000 feet down, it would, when it got to the bottom, it would start up, as you can imagine, into the small pipe coming up in the middle. And we would always know when it had circulated because you could smell the chemical. We could tell that all the space had been touched and now protected against corrosion because of the chemical and because we had, we had gone down one, up the other, and, and, and out. So now we knew that that surface area of that pipe had been protected. But on top of that tubing, that smaller string in the middle, at the top of that there was a valve. Now I want us to think for just a second. What would happen... If we started with this pump truck, pumping in, pumping in this chemical, and for a little while it would go, there would be a space there that, that it, would, it would go in. But what would happen if the valve on the top of that small string was never opened? Well, it's not hard to imagine. We've, we've been in similar situations on larger and smaller scales, I'm sure, but we realize what would happen. The, the truck that was pumping the chemical, the pressure would go up, the pressure would go up, the pressure would go up because the valve on the top of the tubing was closed. And it, can, it could even get to the point where it was dangerous. And that which was intended to provide the protection 
would only be able to go so far because, because it would have no, they would have nowhere else to go. So by design, absolutely, we knew what to do before we started pumping. We opened the valve on the top side, on, on the tubing, so that that which would protect the inhibitor would go down one, up the other, very naturally, very fully, every surface now in contact with, with what was intended. So there's a strange illustration. I, I, I realize it's strange, but it's, it's such a vivid picture from my history, and maybe to some others, about what this process really looked like. So what's the point of the illustration? The input, that chemically treated water that would provide the protection for all of the surface of the casing, for the tubing, all of the protection that it would provide in this illustration is the love of God. The love of God being poured into us. The love of God coming freely into us. And we've experienced it somewhat marginally because it did come in contact with us and we experienced the love of God. But mechanically, what will happen if that valve on the top of our life never gets open. So what is, that, what is that valve on the top? That open valve on the top of the tubing is our love for our brothers and sisters. Because the love of God was designed to flow through us, into us, so that we could not just marginally experience the love of God, but that every surface of our life would be in contact with the love of God, but it can't happen, it won't happen until there becomes a flow out of us to our brothers and sisters. This isn't an option, this is design. He, this is why he's so adamant about it. This is why he's so certain in the verses that he uses and why I can't create a third story here. I can't just be compassion and say, well, God didn't really mean this stuff. He really didn't intend for us to love our brother. He created an option. It's something we ought to do. No, it's connected to the very design that he established for us that the love of God would flow into us when we're saved. That's true. And we experience the love of God in that salvation. But my life the sanctification, this ongoing story that you and I are supposed to live requires that there be a flow out of us. And imagine if I just barely opened that valve, then it would take a long time for, for the, all of that to experience the chemical, the protection that it was supposed to get. So we open the valve fully. So the circulation happens completely and it happens as, as we could quickly as we could reasonably and safely do it. Again, a strange illustration, but I hope you understand that we're not talking about an option here of loving one another. We're not talking about a possibility. We're talking about the essence of a dynamic design that he is revealing in these words. By John, this disciple who first discovered this disciple who called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved because he realized that most were going to spend their life trying to say to the Father and say to Jesus, we love you, when John realized before anyone else that the greatness in this story 
is not to just be able to say, God, we love you, but to find within the human capacity the ability to let God fully love us. And we will never experience the fullness of the love of God unless that other valve, that one flowing out of us into the lives of others, is completely open. Let's look at verse 16 and 17. He says it very plainly. And we have known. This is, this is an experiential knowing. And we have known and believed the love of God, that believe that God has toward us. We have experienced it. We know it and we believe it. God is love. And he that dwells in love dwells in God and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in the world. Not because of effort, but because of who he has placed in us. The jar is transparent and it's green because of what was placed in it. And then finally, verse 20. If a man say, I love God and hates his brother, that means the valve is closed. And that person will never experience the fullness of God, never experience the full love of God. The valve is closed. And we say, God, why don't you open it? Another long sermon that I can't jump into. But this is the power of the choice he gives us. This is us. He placed the valve there, creates our option to live open or to live closed. If a man say, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he that loves not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Again, Jesus is describing a design. He made it to work this way, not optionally, but because he knew this is the one great way. This is the one true way. This is the way that we get to experience the greatest love. This is the way we get to experience the greatest grace, the greatest mercy. This is, this is the best way, not just a way. This is the best way. He's not giving us some, something second rate here. He's not giving us something second hand. He's giving us the best. And it's not even really hard to understand because when you do something for someone, and there's no self-interest in it. We get this very strange buzz that comes along with it. Why? Because the design was when something is released through us that God first gave to us, it would actually create a physical reaction that would cause us to want to do it again. That's design. So Think on verse 20. Listen carefully. That which we accept about ourselves. I want you to hear the love in my voice as I say this. I'm not saying this 
for any other reason but our freedom. That the destiny that God has so assigned to us to be the fourth pillar, to recognize this highway of holiness, to recognize that the refugees will be sent and that we have been made ready. I want us to understand the connection between that which has been said and that which is now present and real in our story. So listen carefully. That which we accept about ourselves, that which we use to rationalize our behavior, that which we use to justify justify our actions, that which we speak over ourselves critically, that which we say of ourselves to marginalize who we are to him and who we believe him to be in us will not, cannot reside ultimately in his kingdom. I'm not saying this to cause people to doubt and say, well, am I, am I even really saved? That's not the question on the table. Yes, not even bringing that into question. But I also know that because of teaching, because of uncertainty, we have been left in limbo about what God has done. This isn't causing us to, by anything I'm saying, causing us to question us. If you're questioning you right now and your salvation, we probably need to have another conversation that's because that's, there's not anything in this sermon to make you doubt your salvation, but it is 100% from this scripture designed to help us have the assurance of what God has done on every front on our behalf. He tells us in this passage that there will be no fear there. Did you remember us reading that? There will be no fear there. Why? Because he did not give us a spirit of fear. So if the spirit resides in us, how could fear ultimately reside in a kingdom that is known by what the spirit does? It's simple. I'm not trying to confuse this. Will there be anger there? No. Why? Because a soft answer turns away wrath, Proverbs 15.1. Will there be judgment? Will there be condemnation? Will there be shame? Will there be blame in his kingdom? Will there be cruelty in his kingdom? Will there be rudeness in his kingdom? No. Why? Because he just said the Spirit of God has been given to us as the evidence that he lives in us and that we live in him. The Spirit becomes the proof and we have the attributes of the Spirit. We have to be actively working against him because that is our new normal. That is our new nature. Partakers of his divine nature. I want you to know I mean this because when I'm looking down at my notes, I wrote it in, in all caps and bold. So that's how serious I am when I, when I say what I'm about to say. 
I am speaking as lovingly and kindly as I possibly can this morning. Now you may, you may be leaning back in your chair. It's okay. This is on my heart, and I deliver it with the same intensity that he gave it to me. That's as much my responsibility as the words I share. The passion by which he gave it to me is the passion that it flows through me to you. This sermon, in essence, says I have experienced the love of God and I want so desperately in these words for you to feel that love of God flowing to you. The most unkind thing I could do, the most unkind thing any pastor can do is to marginalize the truth. Is to try to make it softer. Try to change it to make it more appealing, less offensive. No, he gave it just as we're reading it. I'm not altering the words. I'm not changing the scriptures. This is the way he gave it. I am speaking this morning as lovingly and kindly as I possibly can. I don't want this message, please hear me. I don't want this message to put you on your knees, broken. I want this message to put you before the Father with arms raised, voices lifted in praise, hearts rejoicing because he has poured into us himself. First of all, so that I might be clear, that I might be transparent. And that I don't have to try to be good. I don't have to try to be kind. I don't have to try to be loving. I simply have to be filled and let that overflow be released to my brother, my sister, my family, my friends, those who oppose me. With that output, with that output valve wide open. There is no other design for this life. For God so loved, he held for himself. For God so loved, he just built huge piles. For God so loved, he hoarded. For God, this God who now dwells in us and us in him, that God so loved, he gave. There's the design. Love is expressed in the giving. Whatever I am using to justify my fear, whatever I'm using to justify my uncertainty, my disapproval of something, whatever I'm using to justify my rejection of someone does not look like him. Even the, even the Pharisees, the Sadducees and the scribes that Jesus corrected 
He never corrected them except for the fact that he had the same love for them as he did any, anyone else. He simply had to break something in them, that religious spirit that didn't live in most. We look at the treatment as being different. Yeah, it was. He was speaking to some who had never heard. He was speaking to some who were oppressed. He was speaking to some who were privileged. But no matter what it is, if I believe this truth, for God so loved the world, that his motivation in every story, how he poured himself out, was always love. Whatever I'm listening to this and whatever I'm using to justify my fear, whatever I'm using to justify my doubt, my uncertainty, my disapproval that we feel so often ready to share, my rejection of someone, those things do not look like him. The green is not being seen through the glass jar. The spirit is not seen in me. I have no greater desire. And I think this is our collective testimony. We have no greater desire than to recognize the transparency, the clear and clean that God created when Jesus became our Savior. And that now individually and as a body, that transparency allows the Spirit of God to be seen in me. I want you to know that I love you. But I want you to know it because I know he first loved me. He loves me. He loves me. I remind myself often, he loves me. And I say back, Father, I love you. Jesus, I love you. Spirit, I love you. No arrogance in this. But I want you to know I love you because he first loved me. The valve is open. I want what he gave me to flow always freely to you. Father, thank you this morning for such a vivid picture. To me, Father, a profound truth that most live marginally closed on the outputs of our life. We have been hurt, we have been judged, we have been criticized, we have been mistreated, and we have retreated into this place of being closed. All of us have. But Father, you didn't just die to make the vessel clean. You died so that there would be a flow out of us, just as there was a flow out of you. Can't even imagine this story of Jesus, your story being told without the stories of the miracles and the touch and the healing and the love and the compassion that you showed for those around you and all the ways that you showed it. Can't even imagine the story of it. Just makes that Jesus came, he died. That's it. 
No, because this great love flowed through you by that same Spirit that now should flow through us so that we, too, can look like you. Not because we try hard, but because we let this clear and clean jar be filled and that we let it overflow as you intended. Father, let the love of God abound in this place. And if for each one of us, Father, I pray that our prayer would be, and let it begin in me. Father, let the love of God begin to overflow in me so that collectively, as a body, we would too quickly overflow. And those who are waiting, waiting to be loved, I hear this so often, I just need somebody, want somebody to love me the way I am. Father, I hear it so often. Well, let that love be found in me so that I might overflow. Not so that I can tell others my problems, but so that I can tell others of the victory, that I can tell them of the joy, the peace that I have found, the love that you have shown. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message. For more resources, visit sundownchurch.com.